This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Let's open your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, as we are walking through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and this morning we're finishing the second chapter, and it's really about our identity in Christ, who we now are in Christ. An essential part of living for Christ is understanding who you are in Christ. That's what Paul is talking about in verses 10 through 22. We looked a bit at verse 10 last week. We're going to look at it at great, in greater detail today and go through the end of chapter 2. So take your copy of God's Word and follow along with me in the Word, beginning with verse 10. The Bible says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, And without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Father, we thank you for this majestic vision of the body of Christ. That instead of your dwelling place being a physical temple, that your dwelling place is now your people. That Each of us, is uh, our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit and that your spirit is 
indwelling the, the true body of Christ, all born-again believers throughout the world, and that you are at work in us by your Spirit. You are at work through us to carry out your purposes in this world. Father, I pray that these next minutes together would be a time of greater discovery of who we are in you and what our purposes are, why we are on this planet right now. And so, Father, these are crucial moments. We pray that you would rid our minds of anything that could distract and help us to be locked in on your word to hear from you today by your spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Augustine is generally considered to be the greatest theologian of the first 1,000 years of church history. But before he became a Christian, he lived a very sexually promiscuous life. And one day, shortly after becoming a believer, he was walking down the street and he saw a woman that he had been engaged, uh, before he was Christian, he had been engaged in an immoral relationship with her. And he knew he just didn't need to be around her, that it would be a, a source of temptation. And so he just headed in a, another way, but, but she saw him. And she called out after him, and she, she called out, Augustine, it is I. And without turning around, he kept walking, and he called back, but it is not I. What he was saying is that there was a new Augustine, that he was thinking of himself as a new creation in Christ, which is exactly what Romans 6.11 says we're to do. The word says there, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We're talking today about who we now are in Christ. Our identity as new creations in Christ. How should we now think about ourselves as new creations? That's really what these verses are all about. And the first thing that Paul says here is that we are his workmanship for good works. As new creations of Christ Jesus, that's who we are. We are God's workmanship for Good works. Let's look at verse 10. Paul says, for we are his workmanship. And in Greek, the word is poema, which is where we get the English word poem. But in Greek, the word poema really meant uh, any work of art. Could be a poem or another piece of great literature. Could be a painting. Could be sculpture. Uh, could be Architecture could be a piece of music, really any work of art. The great New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce translated it this way, for we are his masterpiece. But is the masterpiece completed yet? Well, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that once we are in Christ, our position in Christ is already perfected. We are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. His perfect righteousness has been credited to our account. So our position in Christ is complete. 
But in our living, in the formation of our character, we're still like many parts of our church building today, under construction, in process. The Spirit of God is at work forming us and shaping us. The good news is that He is going to get the job done. He is going to complete the good work that He started. And Philippians 1.6 assures us of that. Paul says there, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. <clears throat> Michelangelo uh, was once uh, uh, working on a sculpture and he was out there chipping away at a shapeless rock and someone said, what are you doing? He's, Michelangelo said, I'm liberating an angel from this stone. <laughs> now, God is sculpting all of us. God is, God is shaping us, forming us. And his tools, his hammer and chisel are his word, his spirit, his people. He uses trials in our lives. He uses all kinds of experiences to mold us, to, uh, to shape us and, and form us and to, and to bring us to completion. To look more and more like Jesus. It says in Romans 8.29, Those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. He's making us more and more like Christ. But the difference between a painting or a sculpture... And the masterpieces that God is forming us to be is that those works of art are, they're just to be looked at. He's forming us into masterpieces that are to do something. So what are we to do? Well, he, he goes on to say in verse 10 what? He says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Created in Christ Jesus for Good works. Now, if you weren't here last week, we looked at verses 8 and 9, and we need to see verse 10 in the context of verses 8 and 9, where Paul says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, in verses 8 and 9, Paul says that good works have nothing to do with becoming a Christian. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But once we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, the Spirit of God produces good works through our lives. Real, genuine, saving faith will result in good works, in transformation. So... While we are not saved by good works, we are saved for good works. Kevin DeYoung, in his excellent book, The Hole in Our Holiness, says this, Faith and good works are both necessary, but one is the root and the other is the fruit. So, we come to Jesus just as we are. But then, when he saves us, he doesn't leave us just as we are. His spirit begins to transform our lives. And when we receive his love, 
His love begins to flow through us. And Galatians 5, 6 says that, that faith expresses itself in love for others. The Bible says that faith that does not result in good works is not real faith at all. James chapter 2 and, and verse 17 says, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's non-existent. It's not real, genuine, saving faith if, it's not, if it doesn't result in, in works. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce once said this, What are we to think of a theology that has no place for works at all? What are we to say of a teaching that extols justification, divorced from sanctification, forgiveness without a corresponding change in life? What would Jesus himself think of such a theology? We don't have to wonder what Jesus would think. He tells us, okay? He says things like this, and I could cite dozens of texts here. Jesus says, by this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So, what does that mean? It means that there's no fruit in someone's life. They are not really a follower of Jesus. Jesus said, by their fruits, you will know genuine followers of Christ. Now listen, in our culture, there are millions of people who, um, who say that they are Christians because they've prayed a prayer, or because they've walked an aisle, or because they've had some sort of religious experience. But if there is no fruit in their life, no affection for God, you know, no desire for holiness or obedience, then there's every reason to question whether or not they are genuine Christians. Because what does Jesus say characterizes a, a real follower of his? He, he says in Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If we believe in Jesus, we'll follow Jesus. Again, Jesus says in Matthew 7.21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So if we are his workmanship, there will be good works flowing through our lives. Faith will express itself in love for others. Um, so, as believers, as his workmanship... We are to be a people who are on the lookout to do good in the lives of others. It means that every day when we wake up, we see it as a possibility to do good in the lives of other people. It means that as we go through our normal day, interacting with our families and in our jobs and at our school and among our circle of friends, that we are looking for needs that we can meet. We are looking for opportunities, proactively looking for opportunities to do good in the lives of other people, thus bringing glory to God. And as we couple those good works 
with a verbal witness so that people know that we are doing those good works in Jesus' name, then the Father is glorified. Jesus says in Matthew 5.16, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We, we, want, we want him to be famous. <laughs> we, want, we want him to be honored. <laughs> Not us. And so that means that as we do good works, we let other people know that it's Jesus that's made the difference. That we're doing them in his name so that he gets the glory and, and not us. Now here's something really encouraging. As we move out each day to seek to do good in the lives of others, we need to understand that God has already been there before us and that God has already been at work preparing, preparing good works for us to do. This is amazing. Look at verse 10 again. He says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so each day as we, as we seek to do good in the lives of others, know God has already been at work. God's, been, God's given you the, the, that divine appointment, that opportunity. He's already been at work. He's been preparing that person or persons. He's been preparing you. He's been preparing that situation. God's been at work. And we're joining him in that work. Amazing. And in addition to just the good that we seek to do each day, in the lives of other people. Um, God has gifted each believer with one or more spiritual gifts that we are to use. We're, 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 we're stewards of our gifts, and that means to be good stewards, we're to use them. You know, I never feel more alive than when I'm preparing messages. <laughs> I, 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 when I'm digging into a text... And just trying to understand it and trying to figure out how to communicate it to you guys. Every fiber of my being is just invigorated and energized. I know I'm doing what I was born to do. And there's a sweet spot like that in your life. You know, so how do you discover it? Well, you pray and you follow Jesus each day. And you seek to do good in the lives of other people. You seek to help people each day. And as you do that, then you, you see how God has gifted you. And you do this. You immerse yourself in the church. Immerse yourself. Get involved. Seek to help. Seek to serve. And as you do that, your sweet spot and how God can really use you it becomes obvious, okay? So we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We should think of ourselves that way. Second, we should think of ourselves this way. Once far off, now near. What does he say in verses 11 through 13? Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, 
Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, most of the people that received the, the, the letter to the Ephesians were Gentiles. They were Christians who came from a Gentile background. Paul comes from a Jewish background. And Paul knew that Gentiles were looked down upon by Jews and vice versa. And he knew that, uh, that at one time, before he was a Christian himself, <clears throat> Um, Paul had, had called Gentiles names, epithets. They were called the, the uncircumcision. It was a term of derision. Um, and, and Paul, as a Jew and their brother in Christ, now says to them, he says, don't worry about what anybody says about you. <laughs> know who you are in Christ. You are his children. You who were once far off have been brought near. He has adopted you as his own sons and daughters in Christ. This is who you are. And you now have been circumcised with a circumcision that is infinitely more significant than a circumcision made with hands. Colossians chapter 2. Remember? That you were at that, at that time, uh, in, in him, Colossians 2, in him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so, Paul says here to these Gentiles and to us, you are now united to the risen Christ. His victory is your victory. And you are now his beloved children. Now listen, when we really get this, the chains begin to fall off. That insecurity that leads us to crave human approval and applause and human honors and worldly prestige and all of that stuff, we just begin to be free from that. Because what do things like that matter when you know that you are a child of the king who loves you, the sovereign God of this universe, has adopted you as his own son or daughter and loves you with a perfect, tender, everlasting love. You know, Tim Keller says it well. 
says the gospel frees us from the relentless pressure of having to prove ourselves, for we are already proven and secure in Christ. Once far off, now near. Third, once divided, now united. Verse 14, he says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. On June 12, 1987, President Reagan stood at the Brandenburg Gate near the Berlin Wall, the wall that the communists had erected to imprison their own people and to insulate them from the freedom of the West. And Reagan, knowing that that wall had been built at the direct command of the Soviet Union, spoke directly to the Soviet leader on that day. President Reagan said, Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And just a little over two years later, it was down. Paul here says that Christ has torn down a wall. And that wall is the wall of hostility that divided Jews and Gentiles for generations. The hostility, the mutual animosity. But what was happening in, in, in churches all across the Greco-Roman world in the first century, here's what was happening. Jews and Gentiles were worshiping together. They, having received the love of Christ, the, the love of Christ was now flowing from them toward one another. And they were now one in Him. Now this principle applies to more than just Jews and Gentiles. It means that in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, it, it means that, uh, that people who are different, we learn to love one another. It means that younger people learn to love older people and vice versa. It means it doesn't matter what your skin color is or what your native language is. It doesn't matter what your income bracket is. Because we're all just sinners saved by grace. And all standing on level ground at the foot of an old rugged cross. Which is exactly where he's going in verse 16. He says, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So we are one body of forgiven sinners standing on level ground before one cross. And we are all filled with one spirit he says in verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So the true church is all born again believers. For we, we all are drinking of one Holy Spirit. One body of Christ reconciled to God through the cross. Now he tells us more about that church in verse 20. He says it's built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the church is built 
on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What does that mean? Well, what did God give us through apostles and prophets? He gave us his word. Okay, and so what that means is that a true church is a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, Bible-preaching church. Okay, that's what we get through the apostles and prophets. And the written word tells us about the living word. Tells us about Jesus Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And what that means is that a true church is a church that preaches Jesus. His death for sinners. His resurrection from the dead. His return. Church is gospel-centered. It's centered on Jesus. And... Within that church, God is growing a people. And he tells us about that in verses 21 and 22. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church is the dwelling place of God. In Old Testament times, the the place where God was seen to dwell was the temple in Jerusalem. But, But now, God is building a different kind of temple. He's coming to dwell within his people. He dwells within you if you're a Christian. He dwells within within us corporately. As the people of God, the church is the dwelling place of God by the Spirit, and He is at work among His people. You know, there are all kinds of false images of the church in our culture, even by many, many people who, who, who go to church in our culture. There are a lot of people in our culture who think of the church, they have the image of a church as like a gas station. It's just kind of the place... You know, where you can go when you're, occasionally when your tank is running low uh, to, to fuel up and be better. Another popular image of the church today is that uh, uh, the church is like a theater. You know, a place where you can come and sort of escape for a little while, um, be entertained for a while, and maybe go out feeling a bit better about yourself than you know, when you came in. Um, for others, the church is like a drugstore. It's just kind of a place where I can come in and, and, uh, and, and, and maybe get a prescription for some, uh, some personal pain. And then another image is that the church is like a mega store, just a provider of Uh, sort of spiritual goods and services, right? Great products, great uh, great programming for my family. But none of these images of the church measure up to the biblical one. The biblical image of the church is that it it is the dwelling place of God. 
that God is dwelling in his people and is at work among his people, shaping us, forming us, producing holiness, bringing people together, equipping people for good works so that we go forth into the mission field to witness and to do good works and to change the world one life at a time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing vision of the church that you give us in Ephesians 2. How exciting to know that our lives can be filled with purpose every day. That you've you've formed us for your glory. That you desire to use us to touch the lives of other people, to make a difference in this world for you, to make a, a difference in this church as we, as we grow together, as we're being shaped together, learning together, growing together, being formed and shaped for holiness together, doing good works together, witnessing together. Father, we thank you that we, we get to be a part of something so exciting. As we just continue to pray, maybe you're here today and all of this talk about the meaning of the church, it sounds a little foreign to you because maybe you still feel like you're on the outside looking inside as far as a relationship with Christ, as far as the church is concerned. You don't have to be on the outside. God wants to bring you inside. And everything necessary for you to come inside has been done. The door is open. It was opened by Christ. His death for sinners on the cross, His resurrection from the dead. And He invites you to come in by faith. Turn to Him today. Turn from trying to do life your own way and turn to Jesus and trust Him. Say, Lord, I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you rose from the dead. And I invite you into my life to be my Savior, my Lord, my King. Is that the cry of your heart? And Jesus tells us when we turn to him, we're to acknowledge him publicly. In just a few moments, we're going to stand and sing a song of invitation. And if you've decided to follow Christ... I want to invite you, uh, as others stand, just to slip out from where you are. I'm going to be right here at the front. Share with me what God is doing in your life. We want to come alongside you as a new believer and encourage you and love you, help you as you follow Jesus. Maybe you're here today and um, God's speaking to you about being a part of this church family. We want to invite you to come today. So Father, we give you now this time of invitation. Lord, would you work in hearts and lives, Lord, for those who publicly need to say, I'm following Jesus, for those that you're leading to be a part, seek membership in this church family. 
We pray that you would give them the grace to act on that today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. Amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father. And you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.